This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hi, my name is Michael Dickinson. I'm a professor of biology and bioengineering at the California Institute of Technology. And this is the first of three lectures on how flies fly. In this lecture, I'm going to be focusing on lift. That is, how the, air, how the flies and other insects generate sufficient aerodynamic force to remain in the air and to maneuver. But before getting started, let's consider about flight in general within biological systems. Flight evolved exactly four times in the history of life, in pterosaurs, birds, bats, and insects. And each time that flight evolved, it was associated with an enormous radiation of species. Flight is extraordinarily useful form of locomotion. It's a very cheap form of locomotion, which allows animals to generate new niches and ways of finding food, ways of migrating ac across the globe, ways of uh, gathering mates and other resources. So it's not surprising that every time that flight has evolved, it's been associated with enormous species diversity. Today, though, what I'd like to focus on is in our insects, which are my favorite creatures, because I think in many ways they excel in aerodynamics, flight control, as is demonstrated by this high-speed video sequence that you're seeing, which was shot at 7,500 frames per second in infrared lighting. It shows two flies on a collision course, and the entire sequence lasted only 200 milliseconds, which is approximately a fraction of a human eye blink. The two flies were on a collision course, but they saw each other with their eyes and were able to initiate evasive maneuvers to keep from crashing. It's just such types of behaviors that have inspired me throughout my career and have allowed me to focus 30 years or more of research on the problem of insect flight. It's also worth mentioning that insects are unique among flying animals and that they haven't transformed their legs into wings. Rather, they have evolved a completely different appendage so they can walk and fly. We call these things flies, but we could just as easily call them walks because they're capable of terrestrial behavior as well. So in many ways, insects are somewhat like mythical creatures that we write about as, as humans, like this uh, pegasus that has both legs and wings. And again, before getting into the details of insect flight, it's worth remembering that insects are the most species-rich group of organisms on the planet. And this is largely due to the fact that they can fly. So how do you fly? What does it take to fly? Well, to ask this question and answer it, we really can think about the devices that humans have built over the last century to fly. So here's the famous picture of Wilbur and Orwell um, on the beaches of, of North Carolina with their famous uh, uh, Wright Brothers flyer. And in order to fly, the Wright brothers had to basically solve three problems. The first problem was lift. They needed to make a system, in this case, these canvas wings, that were sufficient to make aerodynamic forces that could keep their flyer in the air. In order to do so, they needed a source of power. In, in this case, an engine that ran the propeller that pulled the airplane through the air that generated the velocity that the craft needed to generate the lift. And finally, they needed some way of steering and maneuvering the device so that it didn't crash. And of course, in this case, it was either Wilbur or Orville who was at the controls of the device to keep it in the air. So lift, power, and control 
are really the three topics that we have to understand if we're going to understand not just human flight, but also the flight of organisms such as flies. So in the first of three lectures on this topic, I want to focus on this question of lift. How do flies and other insects generate enough lift to stay in the air? Well, many people have heard a story uh, as they go through life that an engineer once proved a bumblebee uh, couldn't fly. Uh, there's actually... This story goes back to the, to the 1930s. Um, but I can guarantee you that we actually do know how insects fly. It is true, however, that when you apply standard conventional um, aerodynamic theory, it is difficult to explain the flapping flight of insects. And I'd like to uh, begin my lecture by diving into why exactly that is the case. So first, however, we have to go over some definitions that are going to be useful for the lecture. So it's useful to visualize the wing of an insect or an aircraft as a tiny section that we call a wing cord. And then we can draw diagrams of this wing cord and all the forces that it generates as it moves through the air. So here's that section of the wing. And as it moves through the air, it does so at a certain velocity and at a certain angle that we call the angle of attack. And as we'll see, a velocity and angle of attack are very critical for determining how much lift and drag this structure is going to make. So as it sweeps through the air, it generates a force that is roughly perpendicular to the surface of the wing. And we can break that force into two components of an upward force that we call lift that is perpendicular to the direction of motion and a parallel force that we call drag that is parallel to the direction of motion. So let's take another view of this where we have the wing moving at a velocity u at a given angle of attack and it has a surface area s. Imagine that as the wing moves through the air, it's intercepting a volume of air, which I I might uh, make the mistake of calling it fluid because to a fluid mechanician, air is a fluid. But we imagine this this wing is intercepting this, uh, this bolus of air and it deflects that bolus downward. So in order for it to change the momentum of that flow of air, a force has to be generated. And that force is manifest as the upward force on the surface of the wing. And we can determine how much force that is from Newton's laws. That is, that the force is equal to the change in momentum. In this case, the change in the fluid momentum, the fluid being deflected downward. And it's equal to the surface area of the wing, the density of the fluid, and the velocity squared. We can turn this proportionality into an exact equation by introducing a term called the force coefficient, which basically tells us how good is any particular wing at generating lift, or in this case, how good is that wing in deflecting the flow of air downward. It's often convenient as well to divide the force coefficient into the two terms representing lift and drag. So we can talk about a lift coefficient and a drag coefficient. And we have this nice equation that says the lift is equal to one-half times this lift coefficient, the density of the fluid, in this case air, the surface area of the wing, and the velocity squared. And we have a comparable equation for drag. Now, getting back to that drag coefficient, you can imagine a nice streamlined wing like this one to my left and a a sort of more ugly wing um, right to my right. 
And you can imagine that perhaps that streamline wing would generate more lift and less drag. And that's exactly what it does. That's to say that it would have a higher lift coefficient. And how would we study and measure the lift coefficient of an object like an airplane wing or perhaps an insect wing? Well, we would start with a a wind tunnel. And this is what someone studying aerodynamics would use to study a wing. A wind tunnel basically generates a uh, uniform flow um, of air, and it's instrumented with force sensors that allow one to measure lift and drag. So we take our wind tunnel. In, In our wind tunnel, we put a wing at a particular angle of attack, and we have sensors that can measure the lift and drag. We can then vary the angle of attack, and we'll note that lift and drag change as we change the angle of attack at which the wing is hitting the airflow. So we can then plot these measurements. So for each angle of attack, we can measure the lift and drag, as I've done here with the red and blue points. And then we change the angle of attack and measure different values for the lift and drag. And we can do this over a whole range of angles of attack. And this is how many, many aerodynamic experiments begin. It's conventional within the study of both human aircraft and and animals to replot these data in the following way. If I plot the lift coefficient against the drag coefficient at each angle of attack, as I'm doing right now, we present, we construct something, rather, that we call an aerodynamic polar. So again, each point of an aerodynamic polar represents the value of lift at a given value of drag um, for a particular angle of attack. And in this design of aircraft, aerodynamic polars are very useful. For example, if you draw a line from the origin of such a plot tangent to the curve, that's actually the highest lift-to-drag ratio that that wing can produce. And many times, aircraft are designed to operate at the highest lift-to-drag ratio. Now, before going forward with uh, why it's hard to explain how insects can fly, I want to introduce a slightly different way of deriving the lift that's generated by a wing. So imagine I put a wing in an airflow, and that airflow is going to be distorted by the presence of the wing, because obviously the air can't flow directly through the wing. And the way it's distorted um, means that the flow of air on top of the wing actually has to travel over a longer distance than the flow of air beneath the the wing. And as a consequence of this velocity difference, there's a slight pressure difference. This is a, a, a phenomenon known as the Bernoulli effect, which explains why wings are actually sucked upwards. But another way of thinking about this is because there's a differential in velocity on the top surface of the wing relative to the bottom surface of the wing, it's as if there's a net circular flow around the wing. And this is what introduces a very, very important topic, which is called circulation, which measures this net flow of air around a wing. And it turns out that one of the most important equations in in, in aeronautics is the so-called Kutta-Joukowsky theorem that says that the amount of lift generated by any tiny section of the wing is proportional to circulations, proportional to sort of how big a velocity differential the wing can create. And we'll see that circulation plays a, a big role in our understanding of how insects fly. Okay, so let's get back to trying to explain what the basic problem is. Well, back in the 60s, 70s, 
and 80s, researchers had some of the first uh, access to uh, high-speed movies, and now uh, high-speed videos, of flying flies. And yes, indeed, this is a fly uh, that's pooping as it's uh, hovering there in the air, answering the questions, do flies poop when they fly? And the answer is absolutely yes. But the main reason I'm showing you this is to get a sense that it would be possible to take a high-speed movie or video of an insect and determine what the uh, motion of the wing is at each instant in time. One could then take such a, a data and try to reconstruct how much force the wing is... Ge- the, rather, the insect is generating throughout an entire stroke. And this is an exercise that was done by a real pioneer in our understanding of, of insect flight, uh, Torkel von Weisvogel, who unfortunately had, had a rather tragically short life. But he worked... Uh, on on locusts and other insects. And he did the following exercise, which is to say, if I took the wing at a particular time in the wing stroke, when it's moving at a given velocity, moving at an angle of attack, I have everything I need to know to generate how much force it's, it's, it's producing at that time. Because I have this nice equation that says the lift is equal to one-half the lift coefficient times the density of air times the surface area of the wing times velocity squared. And I can do that exact same exercise at a bunch of different points along the wing. Um, So this is what is called a a quasi-steady analysis, because you're making the assumption that at each point in time, the, the wing is acting as if it would under steady state conditions. Then the next part of the exercise is simply to add up the contributions of all those points in time and ask the question, does the insect generate enough lift to sustain body weight, which is the bare minimum for staying in the air? When this uh, exercise was done on many, many different... uh, uh, for many different insects by Charlie Ellington, who happened to be a protege of Torko von Weisvogel. And he worked in the 80s, published a monograph, and he came to the resounding conclusion that the wings just don't generate enough lift to keep the animals in the air. So what you see here is a series of those aerodynamic polars again, where we're plotting lift as a function of of drag for uh, locust wings, fruit fly wings, crane fly wings, and so forth. But the problem is that in order to stay in the air, insects have to generate enough uh, lift in this high range. So the measurements of real insect wings showed that it's just... they're insufficient to produce enough force to stay in the air. So this is a big problem because we're off by almost a factor of two. So this is about the time where I became interested in this problem. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about my research and the research of others working in the early 90s that helped to solve this enigma of of insect flight. Before I do so, I need to introduce a topic that we call dynamic scaling, because it turned out that large robotic insects played a big role in our understanding of how insects can fly. So if you imagine an object in the air, there are two types of forces that are on that object. And one, which is easy to sort of intuit if you're imagining a kite... Um, that you're flying, um, has to do with inertial forces. Because as the kite is in the air, the flow of air is pushing against the the, the kite. Um, So the forces are really coming from the fact that air has density. It has mass. And that mass is pushing against the, the, the surface of the kite, creating a force. Another type of force that's very important 
are viscous forces. So for this, imagine a spoon in a jar of, of, of honey. And these viscous forces are not due to the fact that the, the, the honey has mass. They have to do to the fact that the honey is sticky, that the different molecules of honey are actually exerting a force on each other. And so as you try to stir that spoon and the honey, it's very, very difficult to do so. Well, it turns out that the ratio of these forces, the ratio of the inertial forces to the viscous forces, which is a force divided by a force, is a very, very important dimensionless number called Reynolds number. And it it turns out that if the Reynolds number is the same, then the forces uh, for any particular problem are identical. So what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is it's possible to take a large airplane, determine the uh, particular Reynolds number, the ratio of inertial forces, and I can make a more convenient scale model. For example, I might want to make a smaller model that I could put in a wind tunnel. And as long as I modify the viscosity or the velocity and keep the Reynolds number the same, then I know that the physics are identical. And this is why you may have seen in automobile ads or on National Geographic specials, researchers that are putting model fish, model cars, even model cities to understand how air flows around skyscrapers. This can all be done with the principle of dynamic scaling. So in the case of insects, because they're so small and because they flap their wings so quickly, it's often convenient to work with larger models. And this is just a a simple drawing of one of the first models that, that, that I constructed with Carl Goetz Um, back in the uh, early 90s. It was just a simple paddle that moved through a tank of sticky sugar syrup. But we were very, very, very careful to make sure that it matched the Reynolds number so it had exactly the same ratio of inertial to viscous forces as the tip of a fruit fly wing as a fly was flying through the air. So what I'm going to show you is the actual movie that Carl Goetz and I took Um, And what you're going to see is a wing, which is shown here. I'm just uh, pointing out where it's going to appear with the red line. This wing is going to move through the fluid at a Reynolds number, the same as a fruit fly wing, and at a very high angle of attack. And what I want you to notice is a swirling structure on the top of the wing, which is something we call a leading edge vortex, which turns out to be really in many ways the secret to insect flight because it generates so much circulation. So I'll play the video. And there you can see the wing, and you can see this very large vortex on the top surface, this leading edge vortex. And I'll play it one more time. So to get a quantitative sense of what's going on, what I'd like to show you in the next slide are the measurements that we made while we were making these videos. And so what you're seeing here is just the time history of the lift generated by this simple insect model wing as it moves through the fluid. And at a very low angle of attack, you see that generally it produces a steady amount of lift. But something very different happens if you do the same experiment at a higher angle of attack. And you can see that the lift trace has a wiggle in it, and particularly a bump at the beginning. And this is the increase in force that's due to the presence of this leading edge vortex, this leading edge vortex that appears when the wing flaps at a high angle of attack. And so we've repeated these measurements for many angles of attack. 
And we could see exactly at what angle of attack this leading edge vortex begins to appear. And then when we plot the lift as a function of angle of attack, I'm showing here two curves. Because one curve represents the time when the leading edge vortex was attached to the wing, and the other represents the time later when the leading edge vortex has shed and is not contributing to the generation of lift. And you can see a very large augmentation producing lift coefficients that are of sufficient magnitude to explain how the insect can stay in the air. Now, shortly after Carl Goetz and I did these sorts of experiments, Charlie Ellington, who was a real pioneer in our study of insect flight, was able to do some very elegant visualizations of insects, in particular moths, flying in wind tunnels, and was able to show that moths do actually produce leading-edge vortices as they fly. Since this time, um, we've generated lots and lots and lots of evidence showing the importance of leading-edge vortices. And this has mostly been done by creating more and more complicated robots. Um, So what I'm showing you here are movies of various versions of what we call in my laboratory RoboFly, which flaps its wings in a giant two-metric-ton tank of mineral oil, um, instrumented in such a way that we can measure the forces and flows that it generates very, very accurately. So we know from these sorts of experiments... Um, Oh, before I get there, let me just show you uh, some of these measurements of the leading-edge vortex and visualizations that have come from such experiments. So I'm showing you, in this one movie, what you would see if your eyeball was staring down the, the axis of the wing as the wing was flapping back and forth. And you can see this swirling structure that develops right at the leading edge. In this animation... Immediately to my right, this is actually a simulated flow um, from a computer model done by a former student in the lab, Sean Humbert. And you can see this leading-edge vortex, an important um, uh, fact about it. And that's the fact that the leading-edge vortex develops on one surface of the wing. The wing then flips over, and the leading-edge vortex develops on the other surface. So the wing, the insect actually is sweeping its wing back and forth, and every time it flips over, it generates a new leading-edge vortex, which is producing this high circulation and producing these very large forces. So leading-edge vortices seem to be the real uh, reason that insects can can fly. And and since this early work on insect flight, leading-edge vortices have been found in a variety of different organisms. They're used by swifts, as swifts uh, uh, can glide uh, quickly through the air. Um, They're generated by bats when bats are hovering. They're produced even by the tails of fish, as fish are flapping back and forth. Um, They're flapping their tails back and forth very quickly. Leading-edge vortices are even generated by plant seeds, such as maple seeds, when they swirl to the ground. So this seems to be a common trick that evolution has found again and again to produce very, very large forces. Now, in the next couple of movies, what I'd like to show you is really why uh, we got this wrong for so long. And it has to do with exactly how an insect flaps its wing. So an insect doesn't flap its wing or move its wing like an airplane. That is, it doesn't simply translate through the air, but rather it rotates more like the wing or the fan blade of a helicopter. So here you see a wing of RoboFly 
uh, translating through an oil tank. And this was a movie taken by David Lentink when he was in my laboratory. And you can see the leading edge vortex develop as the wing starts to move, but then the vortex gets shed quickly as it moves through. This is the uh, mechanism, or rather the process, that we call stall. However, you take that exact same wing and you move it in a different way. You revolve the wing as it does on a... would revolve on a helicopter, and then you see a nice, stable, leading-edge vortex um, that is not shed as long as the wing continues to revolve. So really, one of the key things is this, the fact that insects revolve their wings rather than translating them. So to just give a summary of that, if you take a wing and, and translate it through the air as it would on an airplane, what you see is a leading-edge vortex that's very unstable and quickly sheds. If you take that same wing and revolve it as it would on the rotor of a helicopter, what you see is a leading-edge vortex that stays attached as for the duration of, of motion. So we should really think about insects as being like little tiny helicopters, but instead of revolving their wings continuously, they revolve their wing in one direction, flip it over, revolve it back, flip it over, revolve it back, and so forth. Now, that's not the only thing that's going on with insect flight. This mechanism, um, sometimes called delayed stall, involving the leading-edge vortex. This is certainly very important in the middle of each stroke um, as the insect is flapping its wing. But because an insect has to actually uh, uh, revolve its wings, stop its wings, and move in the other direction, um, there are some opportunities for other interesting aerodynamic mechanisms. Um, And one of them is something we call rotational lift, because the wing actually has to flip over before it begins translating the other direction. And that process of flipping over is able to generate even higher forces. The leading-edge vortex can even get larger. And these forces are somewhat analogous to the forces that are generated when a baseball or tennis ball spins as it moves through the air. In addition, as the wing stops and starts to move in the opposite direction, it intercepts the wake generated by the previous stroke. And if it does so in an efficient way, it's actually able to extract energy from the wake, something we call wake capture. And it turns out that for certain insects, and particularly insects that have very, very, very short strokes, so they're basically always flipping, uh, flipping the wing over, um, that these so-called rotational mechanisms play a large role. For example, in this uh, honeybee, and you can see just how brief its strokes are before it flips over. And honeybees make use of these rotational forces as they fly. So the last thing I want to say is that as you imagine an insect flying through the air, and this is going to be important uh, when we consider uh, topics such as power and control, but the insect can vary the way the, the wing is moving. It can modify the angle of attack. It can change slightly the velocity from one stroke to, to the next. And as a consequence, it can vary the direction of the forces that are being produced by the stroke. So it can, for example, fly uh, uh, backwards or forwards via subtle modifications in the way that it's moving its forces, whether the way that it's moving its wings um, through the stroke. So I hope um, by the end of this lecture, you have a much better understanding about the aerodynamic mechanisms that flies and other insects use to stay in the air and maneuver. 
If you want to learn more about other topics related to insect flight, in particular, where the fly gets its power required to flap its wings and how it's able to control its wing motion, you can see the two other lectures in this series. Thanks for your attention, and remember to think before you swat. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.